1: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system, with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina grovner In this episode, I talk to Lily Lewis. Lily is first and foremost an incredibly inspiring woman, and she's also a domestic abuse campaigner. She kindly shares stories of her remarkable life with me her experiences as a mother, a survivor of domestic abuse, and a seven-year prison sentence, which have all informed the work she's undertaking now. A year on from her release, Lily is dedicating her time to supporting those in need as a student support worker with the charity Interchange. I'm pleased to say that Lily will also be joining us at our annual conference, One Small Thing Live, which takes place on the 20th of May. If you're interested in booking some tickets, then have a look at the podcast notes and it would be great to see any of you there. Please note, though, that Lily does share some experiences of domestic abuse, coercive control, rape and sexual assault, which some listeners may find distressing.
3: So I'm Lily Lewis. I am a student support worker at Interchange Alternative Provision in Sheffield and I'm also a Women's Justice Ambassador for Appeal. Um, a charity law practice in London.
2: And Lily, tell me about your life, if you don't mind. Um, You went to prison, didn't you, for fraud and you were in a domestic violent relationship. But what I'm really interested in is the fact that you said that when you went to prison, you got your life back. And I'm really interested to know what you meant by that.
3: Yeah, I, I refer to my prison sentence as the gift of time. And I actually wrote to my sentencing judge six months into my sentence, and I thanked him for that. I said to him that he'd given me a gift that I'd never had before, and that was time for self-reflection. For as long as I can remember, I have struggled with poor mental health and attachment issues. And this stems back, I believe, to being abandoned at birth. Um, my birth mother felt she couldn't take me home because I had brown skin and that I would not be accepted by the rest of her family and left me in the hospital. And stemming from that, from such an early age, I knew I was different, felt and loved and unwanted and suffered with attachment issues, which led me making a lot of very poor choices. And especially when it comes to partners, boyfriends, husbands, I would see their control and behaviour as love. I thought the reason they wanted to keep me as they did was because they loved me. And, you know, very shortly after the, the initial control, it turned into abuse. And I was in abusive relationships for around 30 years and would drink as a coping mechanism. I, when I was drinking, I wasn't thinking. I was sexually abused and raped by my, one of my husbands. I was beaten uh, beyond recognition. I was financially controlled. I was never allowed to have any money. I was coerced into making choices that I that I wouldn't have I had been control the way that I was and drinking the way that I was and I was put down in front of my children a lot and it's only now speaking to them that I realized the impact that had on them and I think when you're in an abusive relationship because my children weren't getting physically abused it's easy to think they're not being affected and that is so far from the truth because my children all have now complex issues, just because what they witnessed me going through.
2: Absolutely. And um, we'll come back to the children um, in a minute. But, uh, you know, lots of people who haven't been in a relationship or relationships like you have, that are abusive and coercively, sort of someone coercively controlling you. Can you address that point of why couldn't you go? And sorry to have to ask that question.
3: Yeah, you know, and it's, it, it is a really good question, isn't it? You know, Why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you go? I think initially, because I had been abandoned, I was really conscious of trying to keep my family together. And then it was, it was fear of leaving. Um, I did leave a couple of times and I was placed in a women's refuge. And my experience of Women's Refuge back then was not a good experience. And after the initial abuse, I my husband would be really abusive. And then when I was beaten, he he would then become kind again. It was like this cycle of whilst I was bruised and he could see the physical bruises, he was really kind to me. But as soon as they faded, he beat me again. And so I, I was living a nice life financially. And then to be thrown into refuge with nothing, not even my own toothbrush. And then he wants to be kind again. And, and, and you want to believe, I wanted to believe more than anything that he would never do it again. And it just becomes a cycle to where by the time I'd started abusing alcohol and cocaine, I, I wasn't even in a position to, to leave or move or make a single choice for myself. So over the years, although initially at the beginning, maybe I should have left and stayed away, I I made a choice to go back. And it was a really poor choice, but then things developed and the drunker I became, I I couldn't manage myself, let alone anything else.
2: And I think, um... You know, when you really put yourself in that position, you know, I've got children and anybody listening who has children, whether you're a man or a woman, it's kind of like, you know, really imagine what it would be like to have to leave, to pack, to take the children. You know, what if you don't have anyone to go and stay with? Not everybody has, you know, someone with a house where you could just move in with your children, right? I imagine Um, it's just not that easy, is it? It's very easy to say, and I think it's banded around a lot in the media, she should have just left.
3: After I'd been brutally attacked, I had no energy anyway. This wasn't little attacks. I'd been beaten. My ex-husband was a professional kickboxer. He'd been world champion at one time. He was 18 stone. I was eight stone. There 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 was no fight. I wouldn't dare fight back because that would just then create an illusion for him that we were fighting. And I was I was just emotionally dead. I, I just felt, you know, I, I didn't want to be alive anyway. And I, I was just beaten into submission, I think.
2: And tell me about sort of going forward, because you've been in a few abusive relationships, haven't yes. you? And then the one that led to your prison sentence. Could you tell me about that?
3: Yeah, when I met him, um, I I, I was working for somebody who was in Birmingham, but I was living in Liverpool at the time. And I was still drinking and still taking drugs. And he became my drug dealer in Birmingham. So he would meet me at the hotel and bring me cocaine. And then he started giving it me for free. And then he sort of homed in and was driving me home and spending more and more time at my house and um i made a decision to move back to spain i would lived there before and he said oh i'll come with you and he was just building this trust and confidence and he seemed like a really nice guy he was intelligent he'd been to university he'd done his master's degree and i was working for a timeshare company over in spain and he said let's let's do our own i'll do it i'll set it up and because i've got um debt because i've got university loan and student loans would you put the account and business in your name? Of course. So I agreed to do that. Very, very quickly, within six months, I realized something was wrong. There was far too much money going through my account. And the truth is I turned a blind eye. I was drinking, I was taking drugs, I was living what appeared to be the high life and I was dependent on him. And then he become more controlling and more abusive. And it started off with the coercive, and then it became very, very physical. He pulled my hair out so bad that I couldn't even attach hair extensions. I had to wear wigs. And the hairdresser said she'd never seen in her entire life such damage to my hair. Um, Also, I'd had a breast augmentation, and while it was healing, he said he'd paid for it, so he wanted them back and ruptured the scar. And I've got this horrific scar there now that is a constant reminder of the abuse that um, he did to me. Um, We eventually moved back to the UK and he was arrested. And one day my daughter came home, she was 14 at the time, she's 21 now, and she was vomiting and she was quite clearly stoned. And he'd given her weed so that day I rung the police and I told them about the fraud and I told them about what he'd done with my daughter. And
2: Did you, out of you interest, know. tell the police also what he'd done to you or did that not really enter yeah, your mind? all? no, it,
3: it didn't. And, you know, this is the sad part of all of this. I've been abused for so long. I thought that was normality. Yeah, so many I people I thought this say is that. just what a relationship is. yeah. Um, So he was arrested and bailed and I wasn't arrested at first, so I moved back to Manchester and um, I was staying at another ex-partner's house. He wasn't living there, but he was heavily involved in really gang crime and gun culture. And I was only at his house for a short time and I was drinking and getting out of control and he come to the house once and I was asleep upstairs and my little boy was in under the sink. And so this guy thought maybe he's, you know, congested something and took him to hospital. Not He hadn't had anything, but social services were then informed. And then this partner, well, ex-partner, committed a violent crime. And the police come to my house looking for him. And when they saw how I was was living, the first thing was that they were going to protect me. So they took me to the police station with the children and they said they were going to get us all in a refuge. But because I'd been drinking, I fell asleep at the police station. Nobody could wake me. I was also taking sleeping tablets. But my children were not fazed by this. They just carried on. So my eldest daughter took mum roll, and... Nobody said, mummy can't wake. So that was what alerted the police to call social services again and say, quite clearly, this is normal for these children. And by the time I'd woke up, they'd got an emergency protection order and the children were taken that night.
2: Right, and how old were the
3: children? So Jordan just turned three and then I've got a little girl who's almost... Oh, so she was seven. He was three, she was seven and 14.
2: Right, so they were all taken into care.
3: Yeah, that night.
2: That night. And then, so you must have come round.
3: Yeah. Like, and where I are my children? Where am I? Yeah. And I was, you know, I'd lived in Spain and heard horrific tales, but my mind was saying, this is the UK. This can't happen. Surely there's some kind of vetting or risk assessment or something that needs to go on. I didn't realise they could just take them. And that was in November the 27th, 2013, just before midnight. And um, they kicked me out of the police station. And I had nowhere to go. So I had enough money to put myself in a hotel for two days. And then this really, really kind police officer contacted me. And she worked at the domestic abuse team. And she'd looked into the background of the guy's house I was living in. And she come and picked me up from the hotel. But it makes me emotional, because she was so kind. And she put me in a travel lodge for two nights. And I wore contact lenses and I couldn't see, I had no glasses. And she took me to Tesco for contact lenses. And she supported me right into refuge. And then on that day, we were both crying because she'd gone through this journey with me. And then I was in refuge and the children were in care and the plan was to do a 6 month risk assessment but that so they were taken at the end of november i went to the refuge till just after christmas and then on february the 4th 2014 i was arrested
2: okay and before we sort of get to you being arrested did you were you able to have contact with the children at all did you know where they were
3: Yes. I was having contact in a contact centre. Okay. Which I've never I didn't know these places even exist. And it was heartbreaking to have somebody sat in the room watching you. And my children, the younger two, were so clingy and at the end of each contact, you know, grabbing hold of me and not wanting to go. And just so heartbreaking trying to be brave for them.
2: Right. And so then the police must have been sort of looking into the case and were like, right, actually, Lily was involved in this fraud that had been committed by your ex. Um, Yeah.
3: They did actually give me opportunities to go in and talk to them. And I was just too, my children had just been removed. I was still drinking. I I just couldn't face it. So um, they came and arrested me, I think, four o'clock in the morning. Um, two officers, and they were actually really nice with me. You know, I asked, kind of brushed my teeth, kind of put on some fresh clothes. And, um, yeah, they were really kind with me. And then I was held in the police station till around two o'clock the next day when the police had come up from Birmingham to interview me, by which point I was having the shakes and everything because I was an alcoholic and my body hadn't had alcohol, Um, and I was given a duty solicitor, and all she said to me was, you're going to go home today, but we're going to go no comment. All I heard was, you're going to go home today. I'd have done anything at that point. So we did a no comment interview, which is a real regret of mine, actually. I wish I'd been honest at that point. Um, And then I was placed on bail for two years, And the solicitor was telling me all along, we're running our trial, we're running our trial. But I knew I was guilty because the officer had had told me, did I understand the word conspiracy, which I did. And I knew I was guilty of that. So I couldn't understand why we were going to go to trial because I knew I was part of it. But you listen to your solicitor because they're the people that know the law. And I was on bail for two years and I was reporting to the police station once a week. And I started reaching out to groups and getting myself involved with women's groups and drinking groups. I started being breathalysed daily and tried to make some changes because I knew I had the biggest fight of my life. I was going before the crown and I needed to have some kind of strength to do that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I feel solicitors do. They encourage you to have a trial when if I hadn't been drinking, I would not have let that happen. I would have gone guilty at the beginning.
2: Right, so you didn't go guilty at the beginning. So um, the sentence that you got was sort of quite a, quite a big one, wasn't it, seven years?
3: Um, it was seven years, six years, seven months, and then I got an extra 15 months because it was a money crime. But when I got to the court... After one day of listening to the CPS barrister open the case, having seen one victim in the stand and I broke because these were faceless victims until this point. And this elderly man...
2: Oh, and sorry, these were the victims of the fraud. Yeah,
3: so this elderly man saying how he had lost trust in everybody and... He didn't want to pick up the phone in case it was someone asking for money. And he didn't want to tell his children because he was too proud. And I said that day, I'm going guilty today, which I did.
2: Right. When the verdict came through that you were going to be sentenced, were you taken to prison straight away from the court?
3: Yeah. So what happened that day that I went guilty, the trial was still going on. But the judge said to me, um, set a date for sentencing and then said, you you most likely will be going to prison I think was his words but I knew I was Um, but at this point my solicitor was still telling me because of all of the mitigation and you've got hospital record you're going to get two years so we went for sentencing and I think the judge was going to give us all eight years but my solicitor did do a really good job of my mitigating circumstances so that was on the Friday he said he was going to remand us on the Friday And sentenced us on the Monday. So I went straight there into Foston Hall. Right.
2: And the children are all still in care at this point, right? So I guess that, as painful as it is, at least that was one complication that they weren't removed then and there at court and you went to prison. Um, And then tell me what prison was like for you, because I think this is another area that people really misunderstand when, you know, when people say, oh, prison's like a holiday camp. Some people can't. Compute how bad some people's lives are. That when they get to prison, it's like freedom. It's freedom yeah. from the rapes. It's freedom from the abuse. It's freedom from the beating. You know, you having a gun held to your head. I know from looking at your story as well. Um, so, what did that feel like? You're on the you're on the wagon. You're on the bus. You're heading to Foston.
3: Yeah, you know, I I think it was relief because I. I'd had these two years of not knowing what was going to happen, but knowing that I was going to go to prison, not knowing what sentence I was going to get. All of this was almost worse than the the sentencing. It was over then. And I always say that I, I had this feeling, and sometimes I mix up that feeling of excitement with a feeling of fear. It's anxiety. Sometimes it gets mixed up with me. But there was something in me that knew From that moment, every single thing in my life was going to get better. And I looked out the window, it was a February evening, it was dark, but only early evening. And I remember saying to God, you know, you've given me all of this time, what on earth am I going to do with it? And as clear as if he was sat in that van with me, he said, you're going to support and you're going to help. When I got into the reception, I have never, ever seen such lack of hope from these women in my life. Some of these women, I'd never even seen women like that in my life. And I remember talking to a friend and saying, the nearest I could could say I've ever met somebody like this may have been in the doctor's surgery. But I I didn't know these women existed like that. And my heart broke. What do you
2: mean? Can you describe anyone in particular that you remember to paint a picture of? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. But
3: there was one lady who twiddled her hair with nerves so she had ball patches all over her head. And she didn't really know where she was or why she was there. I think she was so heavily medicated. And then a very early, because in Foston Hall, you go onto the remand wing initially, where they see where they're gonna put you and how you are. But on that wing, you've got a lot a lot of girls that have just come from court who are drug users. So they've not yet been medicated. So the seeing people wet themselves, excrement, sick, and not really even knowing where they are. That was really heartbreaking. I kept thinking, this is somebody's daughter. Wow.
2: And it's so interesting that the overwhelming sense you felt, which shows a real sort of inner resolve in you, was, I'm going to do this. Um, This is actually something positive. It was amazing that you were able to see that at that point. Um, And you decided to use it you know, to your advantage. So can you tell me a little bit about what you did in
3: prison? Um, I threw myself into education. Um, I'm not academic and I, I've never really, I think I left school at 15. So I thought, I'm just going to learn everything. I'm going to go do every single course that I can. So I did a warehouse qualification, customer service. I became a beauty therapist. I did a digital enterprise course, health and safety, diversity and equality, ITQ levels one and two. Just if I could do something, I could do it. And most of these courses were three months long. So it became clear to me, okay, so if I break this down, after four full courses, that's a year gone. So I started to break down my sentence that way. I threw myself into the gym because I was overweight from the alcohol when I landed and really bloaty looking. Um, threw myself into the gym, started to go to the chapel. I, as soon as I got to the jail, joined the library, got every single self-help book that I could. I bought myself a DVD player, so playing meditation through my TV. And I was listening to Louise Hay or Paul McKenna or anything that I could get my hands on. I became a Samaritan listener. I'd only been in prison a couple of weeks and they said, Are you sure you want to take on this role? And I was like, yes. Definitely. And the Samaritans come in and train you. I um, became a youth offender mentor so that when girls come straight over from um, young offending institutes, uh, as soon as they turn 18, that day they're put into. So I would mentor them. Which is a big
2: transition, isn't it? It's a big, big step change for them.
3: Definitely. And I would be on call for them 24 hours a day. And I had one um, girl, I still think about her now, and she would hoard because she'd never had anything so i'd open a cupboard and there'd be 20 packets of cereal and hundreds of biscuits and she used to call for me all the time so they come wake me up 4am and i'd get over and she said i just wanted to sleep over i'd say right we're <laughs> cleaning really these cupboards." Yeah. <laughs> and it became like a job so for me i felt like this is a really crap job that i can't leave <laughs> but I'm going to do my best at it. You know? yeah. And I remember sitting down with my, senior, my my fender manager and they said, you know, who do you see me? And I said, well, if I work for you, you'd be my boss, I guess. And they were like, no one's ever said it like that before. But I think I put myself into, this is just a job. I've got to do it.
2: Yeah, and I guess, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I guess that sort of helps the time. To pass by. It gives you a sense of purpose, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I've heard that so often from uh, both men and women in prison. It's like, you know, if you don't have a reason to get out of bed that morning, life is very, very different. Um, but actually, if you hold a, a role within the prison, then you feel like you're helping. You know, there's a purpose. There's there's something else going on other than the drudgery of doing your time.
3: Definitely. I was also a Shannon Trust reading, reading mentor and we had a lanyard quite often the girls would say "miss," and I'd say, "I'm not an officer; I'm just a." you said, "Oh, good," you know, and I, it, I just, you know, I, I just threw, I threw, I, I always say, I did jail really well, and, and I did, you know, I, I just threw myself into it. And I remember growing up, my parents always saying, "You'll never stick at anything," and I was thinking, "Well, I'm sticking at this. Exactly, you know? I'm
2: doing prison really well." <laughs> And then tell me about the kids, because, you know, that's a, a really tricky, devastating area, actually, isn't it, when it comes to, yeah. and I say particularly women in prison, of course, men have children too, but we know that the majority of women who go to prison are the primary carers, usually of multiple children. You know, the data's sketchy, but that is the that is the reality. Um, did you get visits from your kids? How did that work?
3: Yeah. Um, Isabel came a handful of times because she was 15 and wanted to, but she would be so emotional in the visit hall that it wasn't good for her or good for me. Um, we had a couple of private visits at Drake Hall. Drake Hall is the most amazing prison that I've been to. And I've been to most of them um, in the north, um, only on the sentence. I'm not in and out of prison, but I was moved around a lot. Drake Hall, the governor there, Governor Hardwick, what an amazing man. I concur. You know, I, um, I was there for over a year and I left there to go to Wascom Grange. In hindsight, I wish I would have stayed. Um, I would have been more used to the other ladies that were there. Um, the, gosh, the, the governor's just great. He, he, he treated everybody with so much respect you would see him walking around the grounds, chatting to the ladies all the time. He was always available at lunchtime if he was free and he'd be in the dining hall and you could approach him. And um, there would always be a governor in the dining hall um, at Drake that you could approach and chat to. And I love the fact that it was so open. You could sit out at night in the summer and there were benches and you could, it, it was the freest you could be in um Prison and it was just run really well, and you were very, really supported there. Can I ask a
2: question about um, you know, you were in multiple violent relationships, and many of the women in prison are, as we know, uh, have come from sort of similar backgrounds often, particularly relationship backgrounds, and violence is common. How do women get on with sort of male governors and male staff out of interest? Is it always a bit tricky or actually is it good to have a good male role model around? How important yeah. How important was that to you?
3: I think it is good to have a good um, male role model around. Um, and if there was ever a situation where you wanted to discuss something with a female officer, there is, there's always females around. The only thing that upset me, for want of a better word, was if I ever saw a male officer really shout at a female or, you know, see somebody come away really upset, I'd think, you don't know what that that girl's been through and you may just triggered something there. You know, I remember going into the dining hall once and I didn't want to eat, but I wanted to collect my mail and this officer screamed my name and I literally jumped. And I said, and I remember saying, what's up with you? You know, like, why have you just... And he was like, yeah, don't talk to him. And I was like, I'm sorry, but you really there was no it was just not necessary to yeah. scream in that way
2: and i imagine for some women i don't know how it was for you but you know a lot of women self harm to cope don't they and you know i think a lot of people don't realize that if it's a man shouting and reminding you of a time where the shouts happen first then the the blows start raining down and then you might end up being raped you know it's really triggering and if we're thinking about how we reduce the levels of self-harm in our prisons. Well, one really good way is to make sure that officers and staff are aware that um, how they behave um, around prisoners' masses and particularly the difference between the male and
3: the female. And definitely, I think, if I could sit down and have a conversation with an officer now, it would be to say, you know, treat these ladies with a bit more dignity. Just be a little bit kinder. you know it's not a big thing but it means a massive thing yeah
2: it doesn't cost much does it
3: no and I think when a lot of women who've been through um abuse we've already lost self-respect and I talk about a lot of the time I have self-loathing so make us feel that we're worth Something.
2: Mm. And and where are things now? I mean, you seem so together, you're optimistic, you're positive, you know, you seem really upbeat. Um, you made your prison time work for you. Uh, you know, you've got a job now, and it sort of seems to me on the surface, you know, everything's hunky-dory, but you don't just get over a lifetime of abuse like that, do you? You don't just get over the fact that you were you know, adopted or, you know, you were left by your mother, you know, all these things. How, how is it for you now, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah,
3: so when I was in open prison, I started going out to work for the company that I work for now, and that's called Interchange. And Interchange has supported over 20,000 young people in 10 years. It has worked with over 34 offenders or people who have left prison, Their strategy is that if we give somebody a chance and a job and stability, they're less likely to to go back to crime. Um, Interchange is a charity, so I volunteered for them initially. And then as soon as they could get funding, they took me on as a member of staff. And our founder is a gentleman called Brian Reeks, who's an ex prison officer, amazing man. And our operations manager, Hanif Mohammed, is an ex-offender who went to prison for manslaughter. So I look after the domestic abuse, child sex exploitation, and Hanif looks after knife crime, gang affiliated, and we run workshops. So that in itself gives me purpose. I, when I come out of prison, would only see a female doctor. Yet I work with two very strong alpha males and get on so well you know because first I was like hey man you know I don't want to and I'm very untrusting of men if somebody asked if they could use my mobile phone and I would say no because I'm too scared that I know how easy it is to be caught in a conspiracy I miss my children every minute of every day there's not one day that doesn't go by that I don't cry I video weekly blogs since I've come out of custody so my children can watch them at some point um oh, I I'm so sorry <laughs> sorry to bring it up for you
2: no,
3: it's, no. I just I would never ever stop fighting to have them home I start my risk assessment on Tuesday because I've been out of custody a year now and I've proven myself. And if it, I've always been told, you won't get them, you won't get much contact. And I thought that all the way. And when I got to open prison, I did go out and see them and they told me that wouldn't happen. And I see them monthly now. I will not stop till each of them turns 18 to try and get them back. Not one day. You can tell me no. And when someone says no to me, I see that as the next option. It's never no. And I, everything I do now, I always ask myself, what impact would this have on the children? I never did that before. I would make a choice on what impact it would have on me. I'd loved my children so much, but sometimes that isn't enough, and I understand that and um yeah, you know, every day I will fight to get them back.
2: And Izzy is your eldest, isn't she?
3: No, I've got an older one. Than oh, that right. Almost 30, but she still lives in Spain.
2: OK. Do you have a relationship with all of them? I mean, obviously, if one's in Spain, you probably don't see them
3: very often. Right but um, My daughter that's in Spain, when the little ones got removed, she rang me up and she must have been about 21. And she had a very adult conversation with me. And she said, I love you, but I will not speak to you till you get the kids home. And she's never spoke to me since that day. She wrote one letter to me in prison saying, I'm doing this. Don't think I'm not doing this sentence with you. I'm just not ready to have a relationship with you because you've always let me down. So when the children are home, I'll come and see you. Um, And then Izzy is 21. (laughs) So I've just moved nearer her now. I moved in January. Because I don't work on a Monday, every Monday she rings me up and says she's forgot her lunch for work because she knows I'll take <laughs> right. some at night. Can you make me some sandwiches she, and get around it? She's regressive. I keep saying, Izzy, you're not 12, you're 21 now. I know, but um, we speak oof, all day, every day. And she says, nobody else's mum's like this. You know, their other friends don't hear from their mums. I'm like, where are you? What are you doing? Let me know you're OK. Yeah. She, she's just amazing. And I, my biggest regret is I stole her childhood from her she witnessed this from seven then she was removed from me at the age of 14 and when the younger two went into a really nice foster home Izzy went through 15 foster homes she ended up in residential care and i owe her a childhood so i do overcompensate or i love it you know i'll go around clean the house and do anything because i owe her that and then the little two My 14-year-old is almost 15. She now knows I live nearby. So she wants to know, you know, where exactly. But we just have to take it slow. And my little boy doesn't remember living with me. Um, They call their foster parents nanny and granddad. And he says he wants to live there till he's 30. So um, all I want is my children to be happy, loved and safe. And I've learned that that might not mean that they're with me full time but I have to accept that. But they will be with me as much as I, I, I can have them and as much as they want. And I never want them to feel abandoned like I did. I need to break that cycle. I don't want them to feel that mum didn't want us or we weren't loved. And then them having all those attachment issues that I had. So it's just very important for me to let them know they are loved.
2: And was So the two little ones went into foster care. And the reason I'm um, sort of going in on this a bit more is because, you know, as an organisation, we've done a bit of work on um, what happens to children of people who go to prison. And there actually isn't a huge amount of care there for them. I know the two little ones went into care. Um, but Izzy, am I right in saying she lived by herself? And had to give up education.
3: Everything. So Izzy was fourteen, and she, she first of all they were putting her in foster homes with other people, but because Izzy had parented me for a lot a long time whilst I was drinking and looked after me, Isabel would stand between me and the perpetrators. As a little girl, she she couldn't fit in any family. She would say, "You're not my moment." So eventually, she went into residential care at fifteen and she took on the role i'd taken on at prison so she was looking after the younger kids in care and helping them and supporting them and she'd stand up to bullies and and then at 16 she got put in independent living and she would have liked to have gone to college and but she was thrown into this little tiny not nice flat not nice at all in a block store you know a high rise block and told to get on with it. And at sixteen,
2: that at seems 16.
3: quite young. Yeah. So she had to get
2: a job. Right. So she lived as an adult from a from a very young age. So no wonder, yeah. yeah you sort of then when you think about the parenting dynamics, and she's older now, but sort of wants you to mum her, and then you exactly. mum her yeah. because you missed out on on yeah, all yeah. of that. Um. And then what about your parents? Um. Your Birth parents.
3: Okay, so when I was at Ascom Grange, they had an amazing family worker team there. And I went and spoke to them and said, you know, I really want to find about my birth parents. This is something that I feel if I could see them or talk to them, I might feel somehow I had a belonging. And it come to like that birth mum had died in 2006. Um, She'd been in a very abusive relationship herself. Her husband had gone into prison and left her with three young children. While she was he was in prison, she had an affair with my father, who was a Jamaican, who was also married with four children of his own. But we managed to find dad and um the grain to let me go and meet him. Now, this guy's Jamaican, he's 80 odd. He was about four foot. He had leather pants on, <laughs> and, like these little heel boots, because he was so small, yeah. and all diamonds. And I thought, now that's my dad.
2: <laughs> that is my dad.
3: <laughs> he looked like, if you don't even remember, starts Hutch, huggy bear. Right. He was just so lovely. And obviously, I, I then had to tell him all about my life. And he left that day. And two, I gave him time to really, um, you know, understand and take in what I told him. And I said to him, you know, what do you think? And I fully understand if you don't want a relationship with me. And he cried, and he said he was sorry, and that he loved me like a daughter. Oh my god! I asked him about my mum, and he said she was ugly. (laughs) Oh my god! He said because he's got like a this Jamaican fan. He went, Lillian, she was one ugly woman.
2: (laughs) Oh great. Oh, my God. And
3: is he still around? He is. We talk on the phone and stuff. Um, I don't like any relationships that's forced. And when I don't ring him, sometimes he shouts, you you can't just ring me and not ring me. And I think, come on, I've got some boundaries. And I was adopted at a very early age. So my adoptive parents, they completely washed their hands of me when all of this was going on.
2: Right.
3: But we're now becoming friends again and my dad hadn't told me he loved me for years and the other day on the phone he went yeah I love you you know so reportedly of and I see my mum my times FaceTimes my mum's almost 80 she FaceTimes every day and we text every morning are you okay are you okay and when I show her things that I'm doing she's proud she says I'm so proud of you yeah so well she should we're be building building bridges slowly you
2: said um you came out of prison, when was it, 12 months ago? Yeah, it was December
3: 19, so just over.
2: Right, and then, of course, you had a few weeks of normal life and then COVID-19 pandemic down. hit. So oh, yeah. what was it like going from prison, no freedom, even though you might have felt free emotionally, um, to then being told to stay at your home and you sort of, we none of us were sort of really allowed out. I mean... What what was that
3: like? A doddle. <laughs> do, that's what's happened to me all my life. You're not going out You're and not to The stay first at home. person
2: I've spoken to who's come out of prison, it was like, Look, I did ten years in the SEG. Yeah. This is nothing. When people compare lockdown to prison, they don't know they're born. Yeah,
3: and I think it was a bit of a saviour for me as well, because when you come out, I moved to Ipswich because all of my negative influences were northwest. So I wanted to give myself a year. I wanted to give myself a chance. You know, it's OK being in prison saying, oh, I'm not going to mix with that person. So I, I moved away and I, again, just worked on myself. I had some um, therapy. We did it via um, like a Zoom type thing with a therapist. And um, because I suffer with PTSD, anxiety and um, depression, he did some grounding techniques with me. Um, we did some therapies called, I think it's e dmr or something something to do with eye movement and tapping yes. and um so i was able to do all of that and i was able to carry on with my blogging and supporting women and you know there wasn't this pressure to go out and celebrate there was no there was no celebration for me the day i walked out the gates Aspen going i had nobody to pick me up i sat at the bus stop and i cried because for me it was like this is where the hard work's going to be now that was easy this is so I've just worked on, you know, documented everything I do and continuously emailing social services, asking for updates, asking to be involved in lack reviews, asking to be invited to everything, making my presence felt as mum. And it's gone really, really quick. And I've loved the freedom. I started off going to the gym. Now I've got dumbbells at home and I put something on YouTube and I exercise and a juice and I, I, I I used to be addicted to alcohol and cocaine and now I'm just addicted to healthy living and well that's a good vice to have I guess yeah um
2: lily you're such an unbelievable inspiration and I really really truly mean that and I hope you are unbelievably proud of yourself and um and I'm sure one day you know your children will know how hard you fought um and you know and I look forward to you telling me maybe one day that uh that you either got them back or, or that you, you know, you'll be with them again.
3: Yeah. yeah, I do a lot of visualisation and I will be posting a picture on Twitter with me and the kids putting the Christmas tree up and in yeah. all in my matching pyjamas. And <laughs> ready <for a> <laughs> send,
2: me, send me that picture. Last question is, did you ever report the abuse that you suffered to the police and did any of the men that abused you over the years get their comeuppance for any of that?
3: Yeah, my husband, who was in Spain with me. Um, Spain do it really differently, and it's really good the way they do it. You don't, as a wife, you don't have to make a statement. So when the police come to the house and I was beaten on the floor, he was arrested, and he went to prison in Spain for four years. And the judge asked to see me in her chambers, and um, she spoke very candidly with me, really, and she said, that I was in 20 years of of this work, I was the saddest case she'd ever seen because how I normalized about the abuse when I spoke with her and I didn't have any thought that it was wrong or wasn't, I wasn't a victim. I've always say I've never been a victim, but that was what she found really sad was that I was so used to it that it was just normal. Yeah, he went for four years. Do you see yourself
2: as a victim now? I know people take issue with that word because it sort of, it isn't very empowering. Um, but there's something about being conscious of the fact that you were one and maybe now you're a survivor. What, how do you feel about the terminology?
3: Yeah, you know, for I don't really like the term ex-offender. I don't like the term victim. I always say, if I'm talking about criminal justice or I'm talking about domestic abuse, I'm just an expert by experience. Right.
2: Well, Lily, you're amazing. Thank you so much for talking to me today. And um, I just wish you all the luck in the world.
3: Thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been nice to talk. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company.